Hello and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line, it's Chekhov's podcaster, Danielle Hanley. <laughs> Honestly, that's amazing, and also I, I want it to be true. <laughs> um, that one, usually, like Danielle and I put a little forethought into the intros, we've come prepared, and today it was just like, who's got one? And that came to me. It just manifested in my life. Honestly, if that's the level of brilliance, like you're you're just pulling out of your brain after a full day of teaching. I did like, teach three classes today, and it's so fucking humid in Park, <laughs> and the classrooms are disgusting. <laughs> oh my god! We I was just in this classroom that had like these little tiny window air conditioners, and I'm like, I guess this is better than nothing. But students are like fanning themselves the whole time. Props to the my student in my anti-colonialism class this morning who legit had a fan and I was so jealous of her. I'm like, oh, I need one of those fans that just like sits on my neck. Yeah. I like might need to wear a headband. I'm a bald man. I might need to wear a headband. <laughs> like it's, it's a, it's an issue. Imagine- We're already off the rails in the best possible way. I can't yes. wait for headband teacher, John. So. <laughs> well, you've got to wait a long time. I am, Let's get vain, I am vain enough to not wear a headband to class. <laughs> Um, but we are here to talk about just season two of The Americans. I think we wanted to try a little season retrospective in between seasons. Does this also buy Danielle and I a little bit of time to work on some writing we need to do? Maybe. Yes, it does. Is that <laughs> is that an important part of this? Why, yes, folks, it is. <laughs> yes. uh, we like looked at a Google Doc and like re-listened to a couple parts of a couple episodes, and that's the yeah. prep that went into this. I've got a couple of days built into my semester where it's just like let's reflect on stuff. Um, let's think about what we've what we've done, and I think like that's a practice I'm trying to like also be more cognizant about in general. And so why not also infuse that practice into our podcast? Like, does it serve a practical purpose in buying us a couple of weeks to like work on our uh, paper we need to work on? Why? Yes, of course it does, but it's also like thoughtful. Look, if, if you're bringing your emotional fulfillment lessons to our podcasting team, <laughs> like I am so deeply and genuinely here for that. Love it. I love it. <laughs> I think what we're going to do today is try to build out from some season two specific things to then think about season one in relationship to season two. We had one of our listeners who we will shout out many times when the time comes, collect the dossiers. We now have a dossier of Amazing. Daniel Dossier. We're going to talk about some key themes and do a little dossier Hall of Fame action. And then some bigger picture questions about the show and the characters in the show. And Danielle and I look ahead to season three. Um, I'm excited also because it, it like even just prepping this episode in the brief amount of time we did before yeah. we hopped on the mics, yeah. I like got excited to think about like what this could mean in the future. So I love Absolutely. it. This is totally a like steal from podcasts we listen to. It's like, okay, we're tired. We just need to like have a can episode or an evergreen episode or whatever. You know, someday maybe we'll have enough listeners to do a mailbag episode, which would obviously be a dream of mine. Oh my God. I love a mailbag. I'm going to send us mailbag things from email accounts that you don't know. Keller said he was too lazy to create burners and catfish us, but (laughs) now. As more of a go-getter attitude. So I believe you. So Danielle, maybe we can start as a way into talking about season two as a whole is think about some of the new characters that were introduced on this season. And from my perspective, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I think the two most significant or most impactful on the course of the show and on the emotional dynamics of the show are Oyeg and Lyric. Yeah, I mean, I think Oleg and Lyric are the two major characters that enter in. I think then maybe after we do that, we want to talk a little bit about Jared and Kate as sort of second order, like new characters. But I think like with Oleg and Lyric, like both of them 
play such important roles in driving the plot and in complicating the relationships that like had been established in season one. So I think like that, that's a good place to start to think about the sort of way that those, that those characters like then intertwine with plot questions and character development questions. Great. Let's do the character development questions. Like how do you see Oyeg and Lyric reshaping how the characters understand themselves or how we understand like some of the characters? Yeah, so I think with regard to Oleg, something that happens is, like, we get exposed to a different side of Nina or, like, a a more complicated version of pieces of herself that we've seen, like, with her vis-a-vis Stan. Toxic masculinity that Oleg sort of enters into the show with itself transforms. And then his relationship, I'm like fascinated by his dynamic with Arkady Mm -hmm. and the way in which that like sort of toxic persona becomes something quite different by the end. There's like still some conflict between them, but not toxic conflict. I think that's a good way to put it. And I like what you said about how it's through her relationship with Oleg that we get a different part of Nina because we actually get more so than we get with her and Stan. Obviously we've been kind of obsessed with Nina operating conditions of limited agency throughout both seasons. We have Sharon Krause. What up? (laughs) That's a cave from episode 10 or 11. I want to say. And so it's, it's somewhat ironic that it's through Oleg, and we can think about whether that's a problem. <laughs> this is how this happens. But it's like in the way that Nina is able to actually express a somewhat different range of emotions in the yeah. way that she warms to Oleg over time and develops some sort of genuine connection with him over time, that we get to see a glimpse of what Nina's life might have been a little bit like had Stan not singled her out and, you know, like accosted her in the market in episode one or two of the show. Yeah. We get an alternative version of Nina almost. And, and I don't think that it's ironic. Ironic is like like it's through another man still. Well, that's the thing I was like, I was going to say like less ironic and more tragic because, Mm -hmm. but also like predictable, right? Like, of course we're getting Nina through like refracted through men that that's the only way that we're able to know her. Like there's something not obvious, but like structured about that. It makes me think about the way that then Oleg functions as a foil to Stan. Yeah. In the sense that Oleg is a much better mirror or other or partner or something like person to play against for which Nina's emotional self to articulate in a more direct or kind of more transparent or more self-directed way than it is with Stan. And also Oleg is more, at least from say mid season on Mm -hmm. from the lie detector moment on. Yes is more able to be like a container or a holding space for Nina to exercise some sense of agency in a way that Stan actually never is or really is capable of being. I was just going to say that like the, not only never is, but is not capable of being feels like the key piece. Yeah. And like, I, I think I, my first encounter with Oleg, I was like, ugh, like another like dudely dude, mm-hmm. like just like toxic masculinity abound. As we discussed with John, like Oleg is introduced as a fuckboy, a hundred percent. And so, like, it's not only the the evolution that his character goes through, but the way in which his character like pushes these other characters and pushes us to it, like puts some of the stand bullshit into relief because like it would have been very easy also for Oleg to, to go down that road. And there are even times where they are, they're having that sort of like toxic tit for tat where Nina is the center, but then you, but then you get Oleg like sort of like having these feelings for Nina 
Stan having his own feelings for Nina, but the way that, that like those get spun out is so different. Great point. And I wonder if there's something in here about the Soviet ideological self-justification at work because the Soviets understood themselves as a less sexist society, American society. And I suspect that like, if we could ask Arkady or ask Olyag, they would say they operated a less sexist environment or society or whatever than the U S did. Now they have their sexist patriarchal bullshit in any number of ways. Witness like, Vasily sending yeah. um, a woman from the state to uh, to Anton Bakhlanov's bed. But I wonder if there's something about the ideological self-justification that even though some of it is fake bullshit, is also a little bit real for the characters. I think that's right. And that's actually, that's such an astute observation that makes me, like the thing that jumped into my head the moment you started to to make this point was like, yeah, it's like why feminists have to go in on like Marx and Marxists for like not addressing the gender question, like mm-hmm. right? Because because the assumption is like, oh, well, like if we're all equal, then like it's fine. But like that is the starting point of that assumption is still like the universal white male subject who for Marx is like ideally working class, right? And then and then and then not the presumed neutrality is not only within the like political infrastructure like the that we're seeing on TV but it also like extends to the theoretical as well mm-hmm. and even though and I think it's important and you've emphasized this and it's important to hold this that Olya kind of purely sees Nina as a sex object for the first half of season 2 yeah. And so the fact that Oleg himself engages in this kind of character transformation totally. is also worth commenting on. And I, I wonder, I don't know for sure if there's a little like meta aspect happening here as well. Yeah. My understanding is that they were kind of pleasantly surprised by Costa Ronan, the actor who <laughs> is Oleg. I mean, I don't know if it's the extent to which, oh, Oleg was only supposed to be there for a couple of episodes or for a season, but he Mm -hmm. got in the show and was so excellent that he had to be kept on. I'm not sure if it's quite to that extent. But I do wonder if it's like Costa Ronan shows up and they understand that they have this really deep character to develop, maybe more so when they realized upon initially casting and maybe initially writing his character. Well, and I wonder also, and this like brings us out of this a little bit, but like I sort of suspect some a version of that happened with Nina too, right? Like Nina seems like the kind of character that like it would have been very easy, especially in season one, which like bounced around from story to story to story. It w- it would have been very easy for ne- for Nina to be there for two weeks and then to not be there anymore. And like she also is like become such a powerful like powerful presence on screen and is like so central to all of this that I think your point about the actor who plays Oleg makes sense that like they are open to seeing where these things develop. You know, listen, not to bring up Marvel in our Americans discussion, but this is not Marvel, but it's linked to Marvel Star Wars, like Oscar Isaac's character in the Force Awakens was supposed to die, but they kept him because Oscar Isaac is such a banging actor, you know, like he's just so good at it. So that precedent is there. And I would totally believe that that was what happened here. Yeah. At least they wrote stuff for Annette Mahendru and Costa Ronan and didn't leave him to leave them to languish. Like they left Oscar Isaac to languish. One million percent. But Uh, another great Americans connection is that, Carrie Russell is in uh, Rise of Skywalker playing Oscar Isaac's X-Flame. And that was maybe the thing I liked the most about episode nine was that I know people hated that storyline, but I actually was intrigued by it. So give us more (laughs) Poe. So there's Oleg is kind of one half of this major new character strand. And then we also have Lyric and Lyric obviously is a major plot driver. And we talked about that throughout the season. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I like that you said earlier, Danielle, is that these new characters are also driving the emotional development of other characters, too. Yeah. How did you see that happening with Larynx? 
So there's Oleg is kind of one half of this major new character strand. And then we also have Lyric. And Lyric obviously is a major plot driver, and we talked about that throughout the season. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I like that you said earlier, Danielle, is that these new characters are also driving the emotional development of other characters too. Yeah. How did you see that happening with Larynx? Something that I was struck by that stay has stayed with me this through other episodes that we've watched is the scene where Philip like has to kill the like truck driver, like has to kill the person when they get to the base and then the truck driver is dead when they come back and that Philip is so impacted by that. Right. Like I think that that's sort of the starting point of Lyric being like a, like really instrumental factor in like everything that is happening with Philip and Elizabeth in the stuff that's happening with Philip, Elizabeth and Paige, right? Like, it feels like his entry into the show heightens the stakes for a lot of people, but especially for Philip and Elizabeth, who at the end of last season were just starting to repair their relationship. Yeah, this is remixing a little bit of a point that you made somewhere towards the end of season two. You pointed out, maybe this was even with John last week or two weeks ago, that in season one, Claudia tells them that things are going to get more dangerous. The mission is going to be riskier. The stakes are higher. Things have escalated, so on and so forth. And then Lara kind of becomes the embodiment and catalyst of that in character form. Yeah. In the effect that he has on plot and on character, as you point out, Philip and Elizabeth are disoriented and scrambled and just feel shook a lot more because of Lyric. Yeah. Mostly have throughout the rest of the Americans. There's that in the abstract, in the way we're sort of reading that onto the, the show and the characters. And then there's literally like Lyric's, sort of entering into the mix with the murder of George, the phone dude and Kate, right? Like those are Larrick's presence pushes the Jared reveal, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, but like all of those things are like, he it's like him being in the mix that just like fully shifts the like frame of reference, the relationship to the center, like, the relationship to um, like Philip and Elizabeth's relationship to Emmett and Leanne for various reasons, the relationship to Claudia and the entry of Kate, like all of this stuff is connected to Larrick. Yes. He gets to jump across or make connections between the different plot lines in a way that other characters are not even Elizabeth and Philip are impacted by all of them. Right. Exactly. He is the one that, Uh, that is kind of a turning point between or a relay between the Vylian and Emmett storyline between Jared. Stan comes in to this via the pursuit of Jared and Leanne and Emmett's murders. Also the central intel the central America, the Iran Contra part, the Mm -hmm. uh, Nicaragua part. We have Lucia in this season, right? There's all these ways in which he is operating across these different plots. And then including by the end is semi folded into the technology stealth plot just by virtue of the presence that he's taken on in the show. Yeah. And by virtue of like how both of those plots are starting to move in parallel and then like where the parallel lines are starting to like approach one another. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so I don't think we have actually got to shout out. So the the actor is Lee Turgeson who plays Lyric. Um, Just eight episodes that he was actually visually present on, but Quite the, quite the impact. Quite the impact. Yeah. Any other thoughts on what Oleg and Lyric did to the Americans by their introduction? I think one other thing, and I think this is something that they share that they do, is they, they are both part of the vehicle that allows the show to shift gears from like a spy mission of the week into like integrated storyline for like an extended arc or the entire season, right? Like both of those characters are crucial in that, in the shift to that. And I think just from my own personal experience, like they have that function that they both serve helped me enjoy the show more. 
it's an excellent point to use a overworked neoliberal plus podcasting phrase. Let's put a pin in that and to come back to for sure. <laughs> Cause I know we want to get to some of the season one, season two differences. The one other thing that I will say about both Oleg and Lyric in a way mm-hmm. is that, or maybe this is actually more so about Lyric. Now that I think about it, Lyric to like a viewer and the way a viewer receives the Americans, I think becomes a vehicle for further questioning what Elizabeth and Philip are doing on like a moral and aesthetic level yeah. as a viewer. Cause he is kind of mirroring back some of the violence that they commit somewhat wantonly yeah. um, purposely, but also wantonly throughout season one and season two, right? Like how were the roles reversed? Elizabeth would kill Lucia, right? Were the roles reversed? Maybe Philip or Elizabeth would kill the equivalent of George and so on and so forth. And of course the show makes this quite literal when Elizabeth lets him kill Lucia at Lyric's house in a crucial episode, in a crucial moment. And I think that that that's functioning for us, but I think that that's also functioning for Philip and Elizabeth, right? Like, or at least Elizabeth, right? And the Lucia piece of it is, is that, but I like, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, but like the way that, that Lyric is and is not intertwined with the Jared stuff, I think is another moment where I think in the show we're getting, we're getting their sort of like, there's a little bit of eye opening happening with Philip and Elizabeth that Lyric is driving. And I wonder how much of it Elizabeth actually has any cognizance of. And I'm thinking specifically about, and I really love this point that you made, because in season two, we talked about both Lucia and Jared as in some ways better children for Elizabeth yes. and her yeah. own fucking children. Oh and Lyric kills both of them. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that, but that's absolutely right. And probably something that we should, I think like something else I'm interested in thinking about along with this show is like who and how other characters come to stand in for like children for Philip and Elizabeth, because obviously their relationship with their children is like different versions of fucked up. Yeah. So this seems like a the Greek tragedy scholar, Danielle, like who's standing in for like children and what fucked up familial relations can we identify? Something, something, mimesis, something, something. <laughs> something, something, Oedipus, to be super cliche about it. Okay, and so you mentioned this a little bit already, Danielle, but Jared and Kate are kind of maybe the next layer or level of character introductions that happen in this season of The Americans. And they're certainly connected to Lyric. Maybe there's some kind of structural parallels we may or may not be able to draw with regards to Oleg. But how would you kind of assess at the end of the season, now that they are both dead in particular on the show, how Jared and Kate affected how the show functions? I think with Kate, we needed a we needed a version of their like runner or mm-hmm. like their like agent who is like from the jump, not there's not like a combative relationship or like that. It's not like authority. We needed to see the relationship change, I guess. Yes. We needed a different relationship vibe than the one with Claudia. Right. So there's a certain distaste or, you know, lack of respect that Philip gives Kate, at least initially, and that maybe persists. Yes. But that's a different kind of conflict, to your point, than the conflict that they had with Claudia in season one, carrying over into season two to some extent. Yeah, like it needed that needed to change because we needed to see both like what the stakes of being run by someone are right. Like we needed to sort of see that play out without some of the like bad vibes that we that had built up between um, Philip, Elizabeth and Claudia. And then I think we also like with regard to Jared, I think the show needed a way for us to process something that we brought up in the uh, season two, episode one discussion, which was, and I believe you asked this question, like about the show introducing Leanne and Emmett. And then like, they are literally dead, like a minute later, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that we get, we get them and they're dead in the same episode. So I think Jared offers us a way to like continue to 
think about and parse and see that relationship and talk and see the way these like the different rings of ramifications sort of start to pull out. Like there's something about Jared that like just allowed that to extend without it being such an active, like heavy handed piece of it. An excellent point. If there's one thing that political theorists love, it's a a structuring absence. (laughs) So the Jared does play that role in thus it's smart of the show to have him do that and yeah. not give us any of the full revelations about what Jared did or what his life is like or what he knows and doesn't know until the very end of the season. Obviously, it puts us in more or less the same position as Elizabeth and Philip. But more broadly, I think that if we found out in episode four some yeah. of what Jared did, it would prevent that dynamic that you just identified from unfurling the way that it does in the season. I think that's absolutely right. So now we're like, now we're sort of like thinking about the way Jared is inevitably connected to like the big twist at the end of the season that like Larrick is actually not involved in the murder of Emmett and Leanne, which I'm still like, I know that that's true, but I'm still having a hard time believing it. Like it's the, it's big, but it's also like earned like, the shock of it is earned and it doesn't feel out of totally nowhere, but it's also like, holy shit. But I sort of feel like the show needed a kind of background character, like an ever present, a specter, if you will. Mm-hmm. I will. I will very, very much. Um, like a, a specter of Leanne and Emmett is haunting the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> I talked a lot about hauntology this weekend. So. Oh my God. I'm incredible. <laughs> um, yeah. So like the twist of Larrick not being involved in Emmett and Leanne, like the fact that it is that like Jared is the one that did it from the jump. Like I never expected it. It was a total shock to me the first time that I ever watched the Americans that this is what happens. And to your point, I like your point at the end that it seems as if still somehow Lyric had a role to play. (laughs) And that's, this is a twist that is well done. Like, I don't think it's, it's partly a twist for a twist's sake, but it's also a twist for, the show asserting the way that it is in control of how it would like to shape audiences, emotional responses to the plot and to its characters. Yeah. And additionally, it does a good job. I think of throwing us off how we would train ourselves to watch a spy show because in the first meeting with Larrick in their, the office building and Philip and Elizabeth are yeah. in their, like we're CAA officers or whatever outfits Lyric denies, if I remember correctly, having anything to do with that murder. Or am I making that up totally? No, no, I think that that's absolutely right. Lyric denies it, but it doesn't feel believable when he denies it, which is exactly, which is in part like because the actor like is kind of squirrely, right? Like he plays this character in a kind of a squirrely way. So it's like super believable that he was a part of it and not telling us the full truth. And also like, listen, you and me are talking about this. We have a literal section of our podcast where I like spout conspiracy theories about this show. So like the show. Wants and I was to- trying to lead you to make like a wild Jared guess that happened to be correctly. That happened to be correct. I got that pretty close. <laughs> you did. You did. I'll give you that. And I just want to confirm. So I'm looking at the behind the red door fandom wiki page. And it is indeed that, uh, Lyric quote want, admits he wanted to kill the Connors, but someone got to yeah. that first. So like it's, but like in that moment, it's both like you suspect that he's just not telling the full truth, and you're like, I guess like he might not have done it because any number of other people. We also get the sort of um, that's when Claudia is like, oh well, I like fell for someone and maybe told him, which is yeah. like, what are you doing anyway? We'll save Claudia bashing for later. (laughs) I think your point about the show wanting us to disrupt some of the ways we are trained to watch spy shows is really smart because like the Lyric twist is exactly that. And like, even at the end, even when he was like, I didn't do it. I was like, 
yes, you did. You definitely did. <laughs> and it's only when Jared is like, no, 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 it was me. I was like, but also is Larry still involved? Right. Like I'm still, I'm still asking that question. So like, it means that this was well done. Yeah. And I'm, I'm reminded he is, I'm still on the behind the red door episode wiki page that at least initially Elizabeth and Philip believe Larrick that he was not involved in the yeah. death of Emmett in the end. So that's, there's another, like, that's a moment in which I think we did. And I was leading you on a little bit here. If I remember like to question whether Philip and Elizabeth are correct in that judgment, but they were actually, and they yeah. fuck up a plenty of points throughout yeah. the season witness. Let's take a 19 hour drive upstate to upstate New York in the middle of the night. But you know, what are you going to do? To go to a motel where then we abandon our children. Anyway. <laughs> exactly. Um. All right. So maybe those are, we'll have some more season two things as we go, but kind of character wise, anything else we want to, we want to have, no. I mean, there are other characters that are, could be part of this, right? Fred, RIP. RIP, you know, pour one out. We get, we get George briefly in the season, so on and so forth. Like there are other characters here in season two. Um, but I don't think that there are, I think that the characters that we've like pulled out to chat about are the ones who are not only like instrumental to big plot things, but also like we get, like there's, something about the way they sort of like disrupt and destabilize like the emotional circulation in the show. Like that to me feels like part of why these, these characters and not other, and there are plenty of others that we could also talk about. Yeah. And maybe that's actually just one quick note then on Fred. Fred is in some ways the most traditional spy fiction character, right? He's an agent that is run purposely is given yeah. a series of missions, completes them, and then dies. Like, he's in some ways a slightly more traditional character on a plot level, even as he as is doing a little bit of the emotional work on Philip in terms of loneliness, in terms of the fact that Leanne and Emmett had Fred know or maybe even meet Jared, so on and so forth. It's not that Fred is not a worthwhile character to engage. It's just like, I think like I, there's something about the like Oleg, Larrick, Jared, Kate being so part of that, like the twist and like theorizing that I want to do and the conspiracy theories that I want to generate that like (laughs) Fred's not, Fred's just sort of like kind of doofy and like, and, and an awesome character and like has a sad death after which he or rather before which he like is basically a superhero until he passes mm-hmm. away. But like, it's just, it's not, I guess it's like not as interesting to mm-hmm. me. And that's just, that's personal preference. Absolutely. Maybe we should think now about what the ways in which season two is different than season one. And you pointed out one of them already and that season one had more of a mission of the week feel to it than this did, that this is a more serialized season of TV. How did you respond to that? I think that because I like to like see the connections between things and like see the way things that things linger and like spread out and then start to wrap around other things. Like I liked the interconnectedness of season two or like the consistency of the characters and the plot lines and like seeing how those pieces fit together. That was more satisfying to me as a viewer. Season one, like does such a good job of giving us these characters Philip and Elizabeth, like uh, an episode that I like still think about in season one is the one where they get tortured, like, Mm -hmm. like so much good stuff, but the choppiness of it was, was kind of tough for me to wrap my arms around like some of the, the, the stakes. And so I think season two does a good job of like establishing and heightening a set of stakes. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with you. And I think even in the way we could, you know, if we went back and like did a close reading of our various outlines of the shows, I think we would see more of an ability in season two to focus on some of the characterization issues vis-a-vis like big themes that we're trying to pull out. Yeah. Even though there's plenty of episodes where we're like just a bunch of batshit stuff happened and somehow we got to cover it all. 
I just think there's a little more room for the characters to themselves to develop, even as crazy things continue to happen along any number of axes. And there's also then a little bit more room for some of these not minor, but medium characters to develop as well. Like we get more Arcadi or we get more depth to Arcadi in season two. We get someone like Kate, we get someone like Fred when there's a little more opera, we get, we get more Martha in season two kind of right. Well, And Uh, we even get people like pastor Tim and you know, like, I mean, when do we get to say RIP Pastor Tim? But that's like a different. It's <laughs> <laughs> the next part of this episode. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that you're right. I think like the. Us being able to focus the show's development and sort of focusing in on interconnected plot lines, like even if they don't actually like intersect, which is the, the very yeah. thing that is mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. or one of them. Like the show doing that enables us to do a deeper dive. And I think just for like the kinds of scholars that you and I are like the invitation, the sort of longevity of the the plot lines and the arcs is, is something that we can see as an invitation to like, kind of like dig in and, and, and think more, more critically and more expansively about the characters and their relationships, which like just felt like we couldn't always do in season one. Yeah, I think that's the right way to put it. And certainly the kind of reputation of the show critically is this one of the fact that there's a little bit less mission of the week in season two does enable it to be kind of complexified to kind of and add a certain level of deliberateness or perhaps deliberation might be the better word that isn't able to be there in season one. And like, that makes sense, right? A season one of a show like this kind of has to deliver the goods on all sorts of spy shit all of the time. And then maybe in season two, there is still plenty of that. Do not get us wrong. Including missions of the week, right? Even if some of the missions of the week do have a longer end game, right? Like the like the Annalise stuff um, with Yusef, for instance. But- yeah, and I was just gonna say, like the it's not that there weren't missions of the week, but like as the season goes on, the missions of the week are connected to a like bigger arc that maybe isn't so clear, like earlier on, or when we when we meet a character. Even when we met Fred, I was like, oh, okay, dude, that we're gonna we've like the conflict is going to be like, can Philip sort of bring this agent into his own fold after Mm -hmm. Emmett did? Mm -hmm. Um, And then like, cool, done, done and dusted. Like now we're done with Fred. And so like when things, when like some of the choices the show makes, like showing George, the phone dude, like early on, earlier on in the season. And then again, in the episode, the cold open of the episode where he eventually dies, like, it's like, oh, even that like super minor thing is is actually like connected to this like bigger infrastructure. It just gives a sense that there's like much many more moving pieces than even we're getting in the show are like at work. And I appreciate the world building of that. Me too. And I think that makes me look back and I believe it was our episode 11 discussion about how that's the show that's the episode of the show where structurally things lock into place and some of that work that you're talking about to knit together different themes and different parts yeah of the, different parts of the season come together and then I'm thinking about okay what are some of the more mission of the week or a couple week type things and I'm yeah. struck by the fact that I think the two biggest biggest examples of that but please correct me if I'm wrong are, the Marshall Eagle, the infiltration of the base, i.e. Yeah. Iran-Contra, and then getting in with Pakistani intelligence because of the Soviet war in Afghanistan, right? Yeah. So, like, the two things that have a little bit more, for now at least, Mission of the Week flavor are bigger Cold War historical 100%. events that we can latch on to and do some of the filling in work about how they're fitting into the show. And like, I feel fine giving this spoiler that that's going to become a key plot point as we move into the next couple of seasons. Is I was the, just going the Afghan war in particular. I was just going to say like, those are mission of the week, but like those both have major potential to be more than that. 
right? So, like, it's not a spoiler for you to say, like, they become important because, like, that's my expectation. And that's a set of expectations that this season of the show has allowed me to, like, develop. Whereas in the in the first season, I, like, you know, I, I think I, like, threw out, like, in my predictions, like, oh, Annalise is going to become important. And, in fact, she does become important, right? But, like, if we had stopped watching after season one, we never would have seen her again. So like it makes sense that some of these things that we that have we haven't quite closed the dossier on, that's where we're gonna go. Excellent. Other differences between season one and season two that you wanted to highlight? I think like the other big difference is like while we don't get much Henry time, we do get a lot more page time. And I think like that is something that makes the show that strengthens the show because I think the like family dynamics are like at once messed up and also like fascinating. Um, so and I think provide some of the emotional depth and yeah. relief and clarification of all of the spy shit. Exactly. Exactly. So I think like that, I'm trying to think what else. I mean, I remarked on this, maybe it was with John or maybe it was episode 12 that, you know, there's a little bit less music, drops like 80s you know 80s needles drop yeah. in this episode and like aesthetically i think there is actually a lot of consistency from season one yeah. to season two um i think you know the some of the there there are a couple episodes where there are some like flourishes that we talked about here and there that perhaps it will happen a little bit more a little bit more visibly in season two but i think in general like the way the camera functions yeah including how it functions generally or is set up in a room or a house or whatever compared yeah. to so this can how the camera functions when spycraft is going on i think there is like a good consistency in that kind of visual language to be very tv podcaster about it i i feel that i will say like one thing i missed from season one is I miss Gregory. Like, he's actually, like, one character I miss. Now, the characters that we got, like, in his stead are, like, fascinating. But I sort of miss, like, I miss somebody else that Elizabeth is connecting to besides Philip. Though it gives the opportunity for her to connect with Philip more. And that's very interesting in this season. But, like, I'm kind of... And we see Philip kind of connecting in these weird ways with all these different... Like, with Martha, yeah. with... With Yossi, like with with like with Fred. not with Kate, like with sorry? With Fred. With Fred, exactly. So like we get a lot of that from with Philip, but we don't get a lot of it with Elizabeth. And so I think like I was missing Gregory on that on that front. That's the smart reason to miss Gregory and to give the more basic, like simplistic identity politics reason we miss Gregory. There's just no black characters. Oh yeah. I mean <laughs> we need both of those reasons though, right? Um, like, and, you know, we had our qualms with some of the depictions of race in season one. But like, totally. it's just not there at all in season two. Yeah. So I'm interested to see what happens with the Afghanistan stuff. Like, I feel like that could that could be an interesting opening. So we'll yeah. see where that goes. All right. Let's, let's do, I think, what was the original catalyst <laughs> for us to do this episode. Yeah. And that is a Daniel Dossier check-in. And here... We have to give like the most immense thanks and give all of the young pioneers pins to all listener Mike, who is a loyal listener who has emailed us a couple of times. We've discussed some of Mike's emails on the show. And at our what we thought was a joke behest of collating all of the Daniel Dossier entries. And we were like, oh, that'd be fun if a listener did that. Well, listener Mike went and did the thing. So listener Mike you know, let's, you know, maybe we should play like the Soviet national anthem or something sound drop here. <laughs> listener Mike is a champ because not only does listener Mike pay attention to this, but pays attention enough to like keep track of. And I just am like floored by that from anyone. And also the, like the thing he produced is a thing. Now we are going to use, which is like very cool and useful for us. Um, and we're going to use it in like the next part of this conversation. So like Perfect. many thanks to listener Mike. Yes. We love, we love listener Mike. So what we're going to do with the Daniel Dasse entries that have been collated, there's also a minor character of the week 
collection that listener Mike has made. And we'll might deal with that at a later point um, yeah. down the line. We're going to focus on the dossier here. I picked out a couple of themes of Daniel's okay. entries. So Daniel, I'm going to give you what I think are the main themes of the dossier. Okay. And I want to hear from you what it is the show is doing or what it is about the way the show operates to lead you to these kinds of predictions. Okay. Give us the themes. So I think the themes and maybe the listeners could even guess these ahead of time. Uh. One is Paige knows, right? And there's two flavors of this. One is just a straight up or three flavors. One is just a straight up Paige knows. Two is a somewhat lesser version of Paige doesn't know exactly what's up, but something is up, which is maybe a direct quote from one of these dossier entries. Yeah. And the third is specific ways in which Paige will find out. Yeah. Big theme number one. Big theme number two. This is, you know, we all have our like fatal flaws, our tragic flaws. And this is my like dear colleague Danielle's tragic flaw is that she thinks Claudia is responsible for every bad thing that has (laughs) ever happened in the Americans. Maybe in the world. (laughs) Maybe in the world. Um, So Claudia is an evil mastermind who has done, again, the cause of all evil. And then the third is everyone is going to die. I mean, the third one is honestly the one that's the strongest here. (laughs) Um, So what is it about the way the show operates that leads me to these kinds of predictions? I think, like, it's two things. One is like, it's not about the show. It's about me being suspicious. Mm -hmm. I'm like suspicious of shows that no one needs to be suspicious about. Like (laughs) Big Mouth is one of my favorite shows. It's like an animated show on Netflix that like Nick Kroll um, and a number of other people uh, created. It's like about kids going through puberty. I'm suspicious of people on that show. They're cartoons. It's like, there's no one to be suspicious of. One should be suspicious of puberty generally. So I think that this tracks. Exactly. Um, so one is like, I'm just a suspicious, like, I don't trust, uh, trust is, a, is like, I don't trust people. <laughs> and so that's like, this is how it's manifesting. Mm-hmm. And one is like, it's like the way that that general like stance or perspective going into a show is connected to, I think some of the things we talked about a little bit earlier, like there is a way in which this show is trying to untrain us into how we watch spy shows, what kinds of expectations we walk into these shows with by playing around with the things we expect to see. Right. And so I think because I'm like smart (laughs) and get paid in my life to overanalyze things. I like take that impulse and my lack of trust and just like sprint forward with it. I'm going to make a potentially strange analogy that includes a like crucial both and. So follow me for a second. I love it. (laughs) So one of the debates within like Song of Ice and Fire fandom is... To what extent is George R.R. Martin actually trying to do like a subversion of fantasy tropes? And I come down certainly on the side of like, yes, he's playing around with fantasy tropes, but ultimately he is relying on them in a smarter, more intelligent way, right? So they're okay. the both and is he is both subverting and kind of reinstituting or reconstructing fantasy tropes at the same time. Yeah. And I wonder if there's a similar dynamic we could say that's at work here in the Americans where Fields and Weisberg are both playing with our expectations of what to expect from a spy show, even as they do a lot of very classic spy show things so that in the end we may or may not be untrained in how we view a spy show but they are dealing with the tropes so intelligently that whether they ultimately fall back on them or rely on them or reinstitute them is somewhat besides the point because of the journey we went on to get to the various resolutions or uses of the tropes. I don't know if that analogy makes any sense. No, that analogy makes (laughs) no sense because I think also like that there has to be the like some sliver of reliance in order to both subvert and also reconstitute that that's the thing that like connects in the both and. And so I think that that, I think that that's right. And I think that that's the thing, like I'm picking up on that. I think subconsciously like picking up on that and unable to like 
fully release the the like the sliver in order to get to the like full subversion um and that's because i just don't trust anything yeah and i think that the i'm not surprised we turned a dossier check-in into like a deep deep box about the <laughs> americans we'll get to the ridiculous parts of the dossier in any minute now but to build on that point in particular there's something about the way that season two becomes more longer term in its storytelling structures and narrative yeah. structures that gives them more room to do slightly different things with the troops, right? Because like missions of the week, whether they're happening in season one or season two are a little bit more tropey. Like they're spy stuff that you would see in other spy shows, but something like, actually it wasn't Lyric at all, even though you would expect it to be Lyric, even though Lyric denies it, it's in fact, Jared, that kind of, you know, that's again, both the very twisty spy resolution and also playing with viewer expectations and something about giving themselves more room with some of the plots and the way those plots are shaping character developments lets them do this thing with tropes a little bit differently. Yeah, I think I like I I honestly think you've kind of nailed it. So Okay, then let's no, go no. let's let's go ridiculous. Okay. So we're gonna start again, this is only possible because of listener Mike, the they Daniel Dossier Hall of Fame. First entry into the Hall of Fame is a shared entry of ours. Right. Yes. It is the sort of like the um the Ur entry in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and it's the insight that I think we collectively had with yeah. John. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, truly a like mind meld situation. Yeah, which is not surprising. Not surprising. About Martha um discovering Clark Philip as Clark by like pulling off um the wig during oral, oral sex. Yeah. It's the best prediction that's ever happened. I think it's literally in our notes, quote, the best Daniel Dossier entry ever (laughs) we said on air during episode 13. And we weren't wrong, whichever one of us said that. (laughs) We were not wrong. We were not wrong. Yeah, it's it's everything we love about the Americans. Um, Wigs, sex, Clark, uh, the sex god, and spy reveals. What else can one want? And it didn't involve meatloaf. <laughs> no, no meatloaf involved as far as we know. All right. So I think for the rest of the Dase Hall of Fame, we're each going to pick a favorite entry into yeah. the Dase from season one and season two to start to build this Hall of Fame. And so I think I'll go first on season one, if that's okay with yeah. you. Okay. So my favorite entry in the dossier from season one is a little bit of, I think a like surprise sneaky uh, entry. And that okay. is you have from season one, episode seven duty and honor. Uh-huh. Amador is pushing Stan to cheat on Sandy because he's running Stan <laughs> as a KGB mole within the FBI. And much like we talked about how Lyric is able to bring together all the multiple timelines and plot threads, here you are putting Chris Amador in that role. And like there's a Nina part of this, there's the Sandy part of it, there's the Stan part of it, there's a who's a mole part of it. There's a the fact that this was our first case close, that Amador was not a KGB agent. I just really loved that prediction because of its multi-layeredness. It's so funny because my favorite thing, my favorite prediction in season one is that Amador is uh, like a Russian agent, but it's not that part of it. It's the season one, episode eight, where it's Amador spying on Martha is related to his mission for the Russians. In retrospect, this is a wild set of predictions, but also one that I still want to be true. Yeah, and I mean, especially because Amador spying on Martha is in fact related to a mixture of his version of masculinity and his inkling of suspicion towards Martha. Yeah. This is happening, which of course leads to the death of... Amador, which of course leads to like him because him and Philip accost one another, like outside Martha's apartment, which leads to the death of Vlad, like all of these dominoes that fall into place um, because he's spying on Martha. And, you know, 
not because he was a KGB agent, as far as we know. This is something that's not exactly part of the dossier, but like a, a theme we come back to a lot, right? Especially in season two, like, is Stan good at his job? Question mark. Like Amador actually was very good at his job. He actually, <laughs> he got it right, except that he died because of it. Mm-hmm. And here I'm re- reminded of the discussion we had with John again about in Stan's dream, he knows that Martha is stealing documents and putting them in her purse. And there's like a certain callback to yeah, callback to Amador and that happening. Honestly, great minds think alike. I'm excited to see where we go in season right. two. I am on record before the show is predicting that Danielle and I have the same. I've got a backup if we need it. Okay. <laughs> I think that my favorite prediction of season two is that Kelly is a watcher of the center. <laughs> this is was my backup. This is my backup. So we're, we're, this is wonderful. I love it. Oh everything. my gosh. Okay. What's yours? Mine is season two, episode one. The creepy guy who picked up Paige and Henry oh. and took them to feed the ducks is coming back. This was my, I was deciding between those two. I still think he might come back. (laughs) (laughs) Case is still open. (laughs) Any other honorable mention? Um, Let's remember some Daniel Dossiers. Well, I mean, I feel like I do want to shout out myself in season two, episode six. Oleg wants to manipulate Nina into sleeping with him. I mean... Yes. You asked me for predictions in season two, episode 10. It's not like the most ridiculous thing in the world, but I like the set of predictions I offered, like ranged from pretty spot on to like absolutely nowhere near anything. Right. So it's like exactly what we want out of the dossier. Yeah. It's like Larry kills Kate to get to Philip and Elizabeth. True. True. But either does not end up reaching them or does not end up hurting them. Mostly that second part is true. Martha dies. Not yet. Maybe Philip has to kill Martha, so but can't, so Elizabeth does. Uh, God or Stan sees Philip or Elizabeth in disguise. So that, like, didn't happen, but we were a step away from that with Jared. Like, yeah. all of these things are, like, kind of in the mix. Um but the one that I'm proud of myself for is yes. Jared knows more than he is letting on. That was your, maybe the like most accurate dossier in yeah. season two. Yeah. Thank you again to listener Mike for just like putting this together for us. It's so fun to look back and see just like how like bonkers my predictions were. Yeah. Bonkers and spot on. Yeah, I'll take it. All right, so one more thing that I think we want to do in this episode, Danielle. I think we will leave open the question, and perhaps this is a kind of drive. I know that you love a big question and a syllabus to, like, drive something forward. So maybe a season three question can be, how does the show see its main characters on almost like a where the – ethical or moral and the aesthetic intersect with one another. And maybe for the purposes of this question, we can kind of categorize them as Philip and Elizabeth primarily, and then Paige and Stan secondarily. And the way we kind of structured the Oleg lyric, Jared, Kate part of it. And maybe that's a little bit of a driving question for us for season three. I, yeah, no, I like that. You know, I love a a guiding question. I literally spent a half an hour talking about them in each of my classes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that predictions for season three, sort of thinking about Philip and Elizabeth, I, maybe this is more of a wish than a prediction, but we'll call it both. Like I want Elizabeth to have some kind of like emotional connection or development, like to like outside of, of Philip. I think that Elizabeth's relationship to Paige is going to continue to deteriorate. Paige doesn't seem like she's giving up the church anytime soon. And I'm sort of wondering about how this, like you might maybe Paige will be a spy is going to like fit into all of that. I think that seems like it's going to be the main conflict or a main conflict going forward. So yeah, I think we get more deterioration with Elizabeth, but I wonder if that's a, a rift that we start to see with Philip and Elizabeth. And that's like 
how and why we get somebody else in Elizabeth's life. I like that because it actually folds back a little bit on the way we started this conversation, talking about how Lyric in particular is operating, but also Jared is operating. And that one of the smart things the show has done with regards to Paige over these first couple of seasons is set up Paige's search for meaning, independence, autonomy from her parents, like, reflective perspective on her parents, all of these sorts of things like teenage rebellion, but this in this case, Jesus style. Mm -mm. And it has set up Philip and Elizabeth wondering what it would be like to tell one or both of the kids, whether they could handle it, what their lives would be like if they knew on and off the first two seasons. And then when, we see the different configurations those can take as they rub up against one another and all yeah. the conflicts between Paige and her parents in this episode and between her parents and Pastor Tim in this season as well. Then at the final five to 10 minutes of season two, episode 13, they're like, well, let us fucking amplify this conflict here totally. with reveal that, the center wants Kate once, uh, excuse me, not doesn't want Kate, although apparently that's an interesting slip perhaps, but does want Paige to be the next like child recruit. Well, yeah. And like, again, sort of kind of with the, with the Jared twist and the lyric, like the lyric reveal, all of that. It's like, that is at once, once you know that that pro once I knew that that program was in play, I was like, obviously Paige is the next person, but there was something about just like the cold cut to it that was like shocking. And I think that's again, like the destabilizing reconstituting like thing we were talking about earlier. Good point because we get like the resolution of don't ever come near or touch our children ever. Right. Yeah. Followed by Elizabeth being like, well, maybe this is actually exactly what Paige needs. It just feels like what we're going to get in season three is, is more of Paige being in the fold, whether it is like actively and like consciously deciding to take part in it. Or, like, I could see a version of season three where they basically have someone running page and, like, the audience knows but Philip and Elizabeth don't know. And, like, we basically get the Jared, Emmett, and Leanne plotline with, like, major shifts and changes. What a Daniel Dossier entry, just, like, off the dome. I'm incredibly impressed. Any other, any other thing, anything you're looking forward to? Yeah, I'll say a couple of things about season three. Um, Stan's going to get a new partner. And especially after what happened with Nina, this is really important for Stan as a character on this show. He's so constrained and contained by how he responds to Nina and how he acts in relation to Nina in season two. And then the fact that Sandy leaves him, that I think it's useful to give him an additional dynamic with his new partner in season three, as he deals with the fallout of choosing not treason over Nina at the end of the season. Yeah. Um, Other things I'm looking forward to in season three. I mean, some of the, you know, some of like the small plot lines that happen in season three are really excellent. There's a couple new characters that we're going to see that um, are some of my favorite characters. Nice. There's some things I'm very much looking forward to, but which I'm not going to say anything about for spoiler reasons. And then I will just say about season three is that critically the general consensus on the Americans is season one was pretty good. Season two adds some depth to what's happening in the Americans, but season three is critically where it's understood. The Americans really kind of clicks into place Uh. and becomes like the fullest articulation of itself. And that keeps, keeps that up over seasons three and four and five. And then there's some disagreement about season six. It's kind of the critical consensus of the show. So some of the things that we've identified as changing in season two, I think will kind of fully actualize themselves in season three. 
That makes me excited because I liked this season more than I liked last season. Um, and I'm excited to like see where I'm at for next season. Perfect. All right. Oh. I think, I think that probably, I think maybe we should do this again after season a hundred percent. We should do it again. You know, listen, I love a synthesis day. <laughs> Danielle is in fact like queen of the off a bone. Um, <laughs> oh my God. I, I'm sorry. I have to go. We decided not to do the cave on this episode. <laughs> oh, no. I can't believe it. I can't believe I smuggled in a cave reference. Oh my God. Who would have thought that one of us smuggled in a cave reference? <laughs> I didn't intentionally smuggle in a cave reference, which just makes it even worse that's ex- but it's also like that's exactly the subversion reconstituting <laughs> i wish i wish <laughs> i wish i could subvert and reconstitute tropes um but I amazing can't. well thank you so much for joining us on another episode of not quite great books we will be back in your feeds with like another meta episode next week just like another sort of dive into John and my taste now that we've finished both these seasons of the Americans. And also um, I have forced John to watch Loki and Moon Knight. So we'll talk a little bit about um, artistic choices in the next episode. And two weeks from today, um, you'll get another uh, Americans episode, season three, episode one in your feed you know, follow us on all the social media places and we post things there. And thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.